Namaste, motherfuckers, and welcome to Tantric Conversation, episode number 20. Christopher Irving. I just met Christopher Irving on Monday when we were both helping a friend move, and uh, we started talking about comic books, and it turned out he was he's an author. He's written several books about comic books and is a total uh, aficionado of uh, the history of writing and drawing and publishing comic books going way back and uh, even has his own website uh, graphics NYC she's got a bunch of interviews with uh, comic creators and writers and illustrators over the years so here there be nerds if you don't want to hear a couple of grown men talk about comic books then go no further but I think it's a great talk and I I really enjoy uh got a handful of friends that when I run into them I get them to tell me all about what's going on in comic books now because I actually on some level enjoy having people tell me about what's going on in comic books um, more than I like reading them because they go by so fast when you read them but when people tell me stories about things that are going on and you know new writers and new plot lines and stuff that with old characters they get so excited about it and they're telling me about it it's it's like it's almost better oral tradition but i do I'll, you know occasionally read comic books i used to collect them in the 80s had a good friend elliot woody lived across the street from me he is no longer with us but when we were kids um he uh he was in a wheelchair and uh i would go over there and hang out with him and he had he had a description box at dave's comics and uh, all, just had everything, and I'd go over there and read his comics and play his uh, video game system. What the heck was that? He had like the Odyssey system, some weird post-Atari thing. Read comic books with him for a long time. Then I used to have my own boxes, and I collected things like X-Men and uh, Spider-Man and stuff. And then I kind of switched that interest in high school into music, hair metal. I started collecting guitar players the way I collected superheroes and kind of music kind of took the place of comic books for me comic books fantasy all that stuff for a real long time it's going to be a lot more girls around rock and roll than there were comic books and I like girls but nowadays girls like comic books and science fiction and Doctor Who and all that stuff so that's cool we like that fun um so you'll enjoy this conversation. It's been a while since we spoke. I had a hard time uh, getting... I, I ran out of interviews and I had a hard time scheduling new ones. A couple fell through. So I, I just did this one yesterday with Chris. I did another one yesterday and I got another one I'm doing tonight. Uh, so last night was Kevin Inge. He'll be on Thursday. Kevin Inge from Drag Strip Syndicate and Horsehead. And then I'm talking to Marty Key tonight down at the record store. And um, so be looking out for that. I got a few more this weekend, actually, too, but I can't remember who they are. Um, tonight, I'm going to be uh, dining at Comfort because Comfort has engaged in a partnership with me. Comfort and Pasture, Jason Alley, have engaged in a partnership with me because they're down with what I'm doing and want to be a part of it. And I'm going to go there and eat dinner tonight and um, be reminded of how great that restaurant is. It's been a while since I have had a chance to eat there and I'm going to go hit it up 
Also, gonna go see Matt Connor and Josh Small at Ballisa tonight. That's for free, for flea. So you can spend all your money on beer. And also at Ballisa coming up is this is that Square Deal Square Meal Crate Show. It's on September fifth. Guys, gotta check that out because twenty uh, percent of your contributions it looks like will be going to the Harvey Memorial Fund, which puts musical instruments in the hands of Richmond Elementary School students. And if you don't know what the Square Meal Square Deal thing is, it's a whole bunch of prints by local point-and-shoot enthusiasts that have been printed out in the 12-inch like record label, I mean record cover format, and the 7-inch record cover format. And they're all like the 12-inch ones are 12 bucks, and the 7-inch ones are two. Oh, excuse me, the 12-inch ones are five, and the 7-inch ones are two. But you can get three for 12 of the 12 inches and three or five of the seven inches and then there is a buffet style meal for five bucks while supplies last um then also you starting september 11th is the uh rva street festival ed trask and john belisle's uh project bringing local and national artists together to repurpose the old trolley slash grtc uh, mass transit garage over there on Cary and Robinson. That's pretty exciting stuff. Um, I'm looking forward to checking that out. So, that's all I got for you guys right now. Let's roll on into some nerdery. The thing that I've been experiencing with the sound on these things is that the original recording level uh, is usually lower than as it comes out later. Mm. You know? Yeah. No, I've encountered that a few times. I've played with... Um, yeah, bring that in. So I'm getting basically... Yeah. Ready. Yeah, that's cool. Go ahead and talk like you're going to talk. I am talking like I presume I'm going to talk. And you can always just give me the thumbs up if I'm talking too low or need to bring it yeah, bring it up or bring the mic just oh is it is it on is the question is an on off switch yeah okay now is it I yeah that it, looks that's yeah. good i think that's good yeah, i don't think it was on at least not all the way all right so chris i only know your first name at this point are we recording yeah we're recording yes oh, we're, okay we're, we are recording we're, chill, we're this is a uh Warts and all kind of a thing. What is your uh, yeah? What's your last name? Irving, like the uh, like the famous writer um, Washington, or like Clifford, the infamous writer. Uh, however, there is is no relation. I wish, but um, so yeah, Christopher Irving. I go by Chris, you know, uh, in everyday life. But Christopher is typically my byline. I thought you would go with uh, John Irving, maybe you know the. Yeah, you he, ever read any of his stuff? Yeah, I, I, yeah. Uh, he no, likes I, to kill characters as much as you know comic books. Yeah, but the thing with comics is they always bring them they always back. Bring them back so, right? I mean, there, there's no like dramatic tension because it's like, dude, right. he'll be back. You know. Yeah. So you were you told me yesterday uh, that you were originally from Farmville. Is that right? Uh, yep. And how long did you uh, live in Farmville? Did you born born and raised? Um, I was born in 1977 and did not leave until 1995. Uh, went to VCU for art education. Uh, came back to the area, uh, you know, Farmville, 
Um, Tell me a little bit about Farmville. I don't. Wow. I know it is a spot on the map. Well, That's it's it. it's um, you know TV show Smallville. Yeah, that's actually very close to what Farmville is. Um, One of everything. Well, yeah, and, <laughs> and we don't have as many beautiful people, unfortunately. <laughs> but uh, you know, I mean, it, it's you know, there's there are farms not too far from from the main drag. Um, you know, you have your nice little downtown area. Uh, it's changed a bit since I lived there, but when I was a kid, um, <clears throat> I grew up opposite. Um, the Appomattox River Bridge, mm-hmm. which was about a mile from the downtown. Um, unfortunately, we were on the Cumberland County side of the county line. We had a Farmville address, but we were in Cumberland County technically, so we had to uh, ride the bus an hour to school every day. That's why it was unfortunate because we were district for another school system. And yeah, then you had yeah. To it was a like a 15, 16 mile, you know, ride. It was a drag. Plenty of time to read comic books. Oh God. Yeah. I, except I got car sick usually, but so, I don't know. I wasn't so bad as a kid, but I didn't even know my own way to school until I was an adult because I never paid attention. All, all we did was you just go down, um, 60 and then hang a ride onto 45 or no, wait, <laughs> go down 45 and hang a ride onto 60 and you're there. Right. I didn't know that because I never paid attention. You were never watching? Never. I was yeah. always reading or drawing or sleeping, you know. But um, but anyways, uh, yeah, I, I lived a mile from the main uh, kind of main street area. And I would come home from school. Uh, in high school, I'd have a snack. And then I would walk to the library, get a new book. Or when we had comic book stores, I'd go to the comic shop. Um, but ideally was a Crutes. They were an office supply store that the mayor owned and they had two spinner racks of comics mm. and every, um, every new comics day I'd go down there and, and get my stuff. Uh, man, it was fun. What uh, was the first, um, the hero, the first superhero or whatever that you really got into? Uh, well, I mean, I, I read some superheroes as a little kid, like little, like four, mm-hmm. you know, four years old. Um, I was into Star Wars a lot, but I never really got into superheroes. Um, we were actually, I was big into G.I. Joe and Transformers. Mm-hmm. And I, I've told Larry Hama, uh, who wrote G.I. Joe this uh, a few times, poor guy's probably heard it more than he cares to. That comic book is what really got me into comics. Um, it Larry wrote this amazing, uh, and he's, he's a guy who literally doesn't know how it's going to end. He writes mm-hmm. it page by page. Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of a Charles Dickens, you know, philosophy. Um, and every month would be a cliffhanger. Like, you'd have no freaking idea what's going to happen. <laughs> and it was the one thing my brothers and I had in common was Larry's G.I. Joe comic book. Um, so, I mean, that was the first, like, oh, my God, I've got to get it every month book. Uh, that and Transformers, up to a point. Uh, about That's seven, interesting, yeah. both of those. They're, uh, what I remember, because I was probably... Uh, Maybe just starting high school when those came out. Was that like 84 or? 82, 83. Okay. So finishing up middle school. And I remember, you know, they came out sort of simultaneously as a comic book, a line of action figures, and maybe even a cartoon. Cartoons. Well, kind of sort of. You see, this is the the genius Mm -hmm. behind uh, G.I. Joe in particular. Transformers was kind of an afterthought. They were kind of trying to replicate Joe's success, but it wasn't as organized. Um, there was, and I know there's a G.I. Joe historian who probably has a better idea of it than I do, but from what Larry told me in, in my recollections, uh, there's a guy named Bob Pruprish uh, at Hasbro. Um, now, back in the 80s, well, well, first off, they wanted to bring G.I. Joe back from the, 
the doll line from the 60s and 70s mm-hmm. into a Star Wars-sized figures, which were three and three quarters. Um, and those old ones were like six, seven inches tall. I used yeah, to play yeah, with yeah. Them I actually too. have an original G.I. Joe doll. Those are here. awesome. The They're helicopter amazing. and the Buddha statue and the raft and all that junk. Well, you're thinking like, you know, Action Joe, which was the... Because basically they rebranded it. Like after the guys Vietnam. had actual hair on them and yeah, joints, yeah, yeah. That's, and that's like they could hold eagle, an eagle eye vision and, and right. kung fu grip. So, so basically, um, back in the eighties, you could not advertise toys with animation mm-hmm. because, God forbid, kids would get deluded and think their toys can move. Ah, uh, yes, false you know? advertising. Mm. Oh yeah. So, so anyway, so there was this brilliant idea Hasbro had. They had the designs for for a batch of figures. And they took him to, to Marvel Comics. Um, Jim Shooter, who was editor-in-chief at Marvel, who I, I actually think is a genius, um, he's very divisive of a figure, but he did some great things for comics. Mm-hmm. According to Marvel, the president of... Uh, according to Jim, the president... Um, one of the presidents of Marvel, I think it was Jim Galton. Mm-hmm. Um, this is coming off the top of my head was in the bathroom with a dude from Hasbro. Like they just happened to be taking a leak at the same time and they were just shooting the shit side by and side of the urinal. Yeah, kind of, yeah, yeah, uh, exactly. Where all great things happen. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, it's always kind of awkward for me, but anyways, um, <laughs> but yeah, he, he, they, that's how they, they met in, 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 so Hasbro. So Galton's idea was let us come up with, with your, your, uh, your backstory, mm-hmm. your characters, long story short, Marvel and Hasbro meet, and Hasbro's like, we want you to develop these these characters. And, um, you know, Larry Hama, who was in, uh, he had written some comics and done some editing and he'd learned from Neil Adams and Wallace Wood. I mean, he'd acted. He's actually in the movie The Warriors. He's in like an early scene. Oh, yeah? Yeah, he's a dude on a subway wearing a funny hat. And what comics did he write before he started doing this? Uh, you know, I think he may have done some kung fu stuff for Marvel. He had edited Crazy, which was a humor magazine mm-hmm, at Marvel, mm-hmm. um, using a lot of tricks that he'd learned from Harvey Kurtzman, actually. Cause, did cause Crazy he have that that Flatbush? What was the character? Uh, Four you're thinking Irving Fourbush. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Crazy had a dude with a big black floppy hat. Okay. Um, but anyways, so Larry, Larry wound up getting the G.I. Joe thing. He had done a pitch called Fury Force, which was about Nick Fury's son. Mm-hmm. And he kind of you know, took elements of that and worked into G.I. Joe. Um, but the, the brilliance of this was that Hasbro basically had Marvel produce commercials, animated commercials, oh, and I think yeah. Hasbro paid for it for the comic book, right. which happened to be modeled off a toy line. So the comic book had, you know, and, and they told Larry from issue to issue, have this guy, this guy, this guy, you know, these new guys are coming out, work them in. So, so they would have the cartoon commercial for the comic book advertising the toy. Like it was all very well planned. Right. Almost Machiavellian. Um, That's and, right. So it wasn't a series for a, a while. It was a series they did, they at some a, point. Well, right? a comic book series, but a cartoon series. Never a cartoon like series? A, a five-parter one year, and then I think they did another So most of what I remember are the like 30-second spots that might have been coming on in the afternoon <clears throat> yeah. or on Saturday morning car- during Saturday morning cartoons. Yeah, they, the commercials. Yeah, oh, yeah. wow. They were, they were amazing. And, um, and again, there, there are guys, the guys who do yojo.com probably mm-hmm. have something far more in-depth. This is all me just off sure, the top sure. of my head. But, um, I mean, but, it was an amazing transmedia 
event. But it, you weren't thinking you know? about that when you got into it, right? Like, what was it that you liked oh. about G.I. Joe when you started? Um, I didn't Originally, I didn't like G.I. Joe. Originally, I liked, um, you know, just Transformers because mm-hmm. they were big fucking robots. Right, right. <laughs> Turned <laughs> into, into cars, cars and shit. Right? <laughs> fucked everyone's shit up. Um, and they, they fought in the desert. I mean, mm-hmm. it had Optimus Prime, who was the coolest. Very little name. collateral damage out there in the desert. I know, yeah. I know. That, and, and very little to animate. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> Good point. But, but you know. Uh, was that Filmation stuff? No, no. Oh, God, no. That was Sunbow and Marvel. Oh, okay. Filmation did He-Man. And oh, yeah. She-Ra. And Tarzan. Oh, I don't remember the Tarzan. Yeah, anyways, they, yeah so, so it was... Um, some you know I, it was like number thirty one was the first GI Joe we picked up. Um, maybe we got I think we got the figures first. Sean got a short fuse figure, and one Christmas I got a Destro. I still mm-hmm. have him. Mm-hmm. He he's here. He's the guy with the metal face, right? Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. the mask. Um, Scottish, a Scottish arms dealer, very noble. With a disco styling, because uh, like the big red <laughs> co- open collar and the oh yeah, pen. he's an ascot or something. Awesome. Too, right? No, he didn't wear. He had like a, a kind of an S and M studded collar. Oh, it was yeah. part of his mask. But um, yeah, so so and I and I also got the polar bear, which was like the little snowmobile. Mm-hmm. So we had like so short fuse broke the first day. He's the demolitions. Yeah, guy? he uh-huh. he had the uh, oh crap. What do you call him? The Mortar. Mortar, yes. Mm-hmm. He was the mortar soldier. So Sean, I remember, was twisting short fuse in the living room because they had the O-ring. Mm-hmm. They have like this little elastic ring that holds the, the top and bottom parts of their body together. Mm-hmm. You know, the torso. Yeah, oh, yeah. Legs, yeah uh-huh. and legs. And Sean snapped the O-ring. And it was like, that was it for short fuse. <laughs> but Sean did get Breaker because they were the only figures we had. Mm-hmm. Um, and Breaker had like this gun Witzer type howitzer uh-huh. type thing um and and then at one point i remember one christmas like sean got a shit ton of guys like firefly and is sean your brother yeah he's mm-hmm. my older brother by two years um and i got some transformers but you know he got this great batch of gi joes um we got into that but at one point we picked up the comics uh, i think it was number 31 there was a fight fight at snake eyes cabin and it ends with the cabin blowing up um, Who was your favorite character in those? Oh, gosh, I mean, everyone loves Snake Eyes, yeah, right? Yeah, I loved Tripwire. He was now Tripwire was now I was a goofy, clumsy kid. Um, big surprise, but I was incredibly clumsy, mm-hmm. and I loved physical humor as well, mm-hmm. like you know, people slipping on banana Pratt peels. Falls, and, yeah, right? I love mm-hmm. that stuff. And now the GI Joe figures had file cards on the back. They were like mock dossiers, which Larry actually wrote all of those. Um, and they told you about the character's personality and so forth. Now, what I love about Tripwire, he's a demolitions, well, like a, an explosives, EOD, explosive ordinance disposal. Right. And he's a total freaking klutz. And he apparently had, like, joined a monastery and they kicked him out because he broke too many dishes. Like, <laughs> these were the running jokes. But, like, when you give him a live explosive, he's, he's cool as a cucumber, mm-hmm. man. And, mm-hmm. and I thought that was always really cool. And he, and he was a cool-looking character. Right, the paradox with, of that, right? Yeah, yeah. And the genius of Larry. I mean, Larry mm-hmm. would just come up with these crazy-ass character, you know, personality bits. Um, but he, the figure came with, and again, I have, I have a reissue of him, but I have him. He came with, like, a mind detector and a backpack that had these little mines, you know, little disc mm-hmm. mines. Mm-hmm. And it was just a cool figure. And yeah. He had, like, this body armor and goggles and... 
I always love Tripwire. Um, I love Destro as a character because he's so noble. So you mentioned the writer, Larry, what's his name? Hama. Hama. J-M-A. And so you're aware now of the writing that went into this and the writing of the cards. As a, you know, were you more just interested? I mean, I guess you initially had an instinct about the interesting paradox between that guy being clumsy and him being good at this. But did you appreciate the writing then or getting drawn oh, into God, this yeah. story? Yeah. Oh, God, okay. yeah. There, there was a guy named Rod Wiggum drew G.I. Joe for up until, I'd say, the 50s. And Rod had this amazingly slick, almost stiff style. It was just... Uh, Andy Mushinsky was the inker on it. And I loved Rod's work um, because he drew them to look like real people. They weren't superheroes. Mm-hmm. You know, they may have been fit, but right. they, they actually, like, clothing looked real. Yeah. Like, his stuff was incredible. Um, I love the artwork, but Larry, well, listen, man, I mean, Larry's stuff was so engaging, and Larry would actually kill characters off, or seemingly mm-hmm. kill them off mm-hmm. periodically. Some guys were dead as a doornail, and some came back mm-hmm. or turned out to have just lost a leg or mm-hmm. something. But the dramatic tension in G.I. Joe was amazing. And But this is the most important thing, and I think this goes for any time you do something for kids or preteens or whatever. It never talked down to the reader. As mm-hmm. an eight-year-old, I felt uh, I felt quite a bit like an adult reading it because they, he didn't write them for kids. I mean, they're, right. and, and if, I've gone back and reread those as an adult, and there's an amazing amount of like um, satire and pastiche. And, mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's an amazing. Like, well, the thing is, people really underestimate kids' yeah. abilities to appreciate that yeah. stuff, and they're and it, I think it you know it's hard to actually truly write down to a kid because you're assuming what a kid is like and if you're really just being you kids understand it like you know i was reading other books besides comic books that were fairly sophisticated i mean they weren't intended for kids at that when i was reading comic books like you know sci-fi and fantasy and stuff were you reading that stuff stuff? right but but that's definitely not for kids like asimov but yeah but i think that the thing is okay a good example is the G.I. Joe cartoon. Mm-hmm. The G.I. Joe cartoon, like, there's some stuff in it now that I didn't get as mm-hmm. a kid. But generally, I felt like I was talked down to because they had laser guns. And, right. you know, everyone would jump out of a, a Sky Striker before it blew up. You know, a jet. You know, mm-hmm. no no one would get killed or, or really seriously hurt. Mm-hmm. And I felt like it was I was being talked down to. Yeah. Now, now it's not the patronized. Yeah, it, patronized is a great way, mm-hmm. and that that's not any fault of the uh, the people behind the cartoon. Right. Well, it's, it's it, it, it was a marketing ploy that happened to have good writing behind yeah. it. That and so they were really you know aiming at a demographic, and, and I'm sure there were a lot of people that had to sign off on the <clears throat> the communication to that. Oh yeah, yeah. FCC and yeah, yeah. And guidelines. However, Transformers. The Transformers cartoon shit got real. Yeah, you know, people get arms blown off. People would, I mean, it it would really like people that would happen get, to people or the, the well, not robot, people, but right, robots. Right. You know, and and it's because they were robots. I think right. they could get away with a lot of stuff like that. But yeah, I mean, I, I could talk about this stuff forever. But GI Joe is, I think, the greatest um, instance of an intentional cross marketing mm-hmm. that worked, mm-hmm. and everything else since then has kind of. And, you know, and, and G.I. Joe couldn't have happened if Star Wars hadn't been huge. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But, you know, Star Wars, like Roy Thomas. So the same toy company? You know, ha- did you say that Hasbro? Kenner. Kenner, Kenner okay, did the Kenner Star Wars did figures. Star Wars. Right. Now, Hasbro right. has bought Kenner. Okay. So now Hasbro does 
the Star Wars figures, which are incredible, incredible figures now. But, um, but you know, Star Wars was an accident, a happy accident. Um, Roy Thomas, uh, who was an editor, the second editor in chief at Marvel after Stan Lee, um, and a writer who just did a ton of, and Roy's, yeah, Roy's done some incredible things. But Roy had the the foresight to insist that Marvel, who at that time was going through some, you know, kind of a tough period, he insisted they license Star Wars. Uh, I think Chris Claremont, who wrote X-Men, I, oh, yeah. I think it was Chris, put it best. He said Roy would, like, hold his breath till his face turned blue so that Marvel would finally license it. And they licensed it, and it was just did gangbusters. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But Star Wars was an accident. Yeah. A complete accident. G.I. Joe was very well planned, but, you know, I feel like it, it became... The idea that you can transfer, like, I guess, the narrative that you really are into with this story onto these inanimate objects and that you can continue and create your own, yeah. right? And, uh, and, and yet all they really are is molded plastic, but yet yeah. people can... <laughs> that you, you imbue them with a little story yep. and bam. And personality. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the thing. I mean, uh, Larry just wrote on... On Facebook today, um, character trumps plot. Mm -hmm. And that Mm -hmm. is so true because, you know, um, if you worry about plot, then you you sacrifice character. Transformers, for example, look at the Transformers cartoon. The reason people our age, or my age, we think so highly of Bumblebee and Optimus Prime is because they really took the time to give them personality. Yeah. the reason we don't really connect with the Transformers and the movies as much by Michael Bay is because they, they don't really take the time to build the personality right. like they should. Um, and well, that's a know. problem with Michael Bay in general. He's a spectacle well, guy. Well, yeah, right? but you know what? Michael Bay owns up to it. I mean, yeah. you know, Michael Bay, who claims he has artistic cred, is... is uh, the, Why he would even bother with James that. James Cameron. <laughs> you know right. what I mean? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like Michael Bay's like, yeah, I do, I do popcorn. And, right. But he has a distinctive visual style. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think Michael Bay's kind of a genius for what he does. Yeah. You know, and he's big enough and smart enough to not pretend to be a legitimate artiste. Right. Auteur type. He just, he makes his, his movies. Well, yeah, and that's the fun. I mean, I, I'm a r- relatively educated, literate person. I've, I've read a lot of, I was an English major. I've read a lot of serious you know, literature, and I've read, you know, a fair amount, more, you know, my my fair share of that kind of stuff, and then a lot of other kinds of adult sort of fiction, but what I really enjoy is this larger-than-life, mythological, kind of archetypical stuff that happens in all kinds of comic books. I I like, and animated shows, I mean, because I watched that Avengers series on Netflix, Um, that's a go-to when I don't want to think, I just want to watch something, (laughs) like, you know. I mean, there's enough to hold on to storyline-wise that it's not a complete, like, childish... I mean, you're not being... Children are being patronized on that show. I mean, there's real serious writers involved. Well, I'll tell you, if you really... And it's on Netflix, mm -hmm. uh, Transformers Prime is the best Transformers I've ever seen. See, I never really got into the Transformers. Check it out. Check it out. It's amazing. It's what the movie should have been. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's... It just ended, actually, and they're doing, like, a a DVD movie. But that's... You know that that's Transformers. I can get people who don't like Transformers, right? Because again, character trumps mm-hmm. plot. Sure, the character even are so what well you defined. can transfer onto the character. I mean, if you, if you believe the character enough, the drawings, all of that, the art, all of that mm-hmm. stuff doesn't matter as much if you're really you know meeting them halfway or 
you know, more well, than half yeah, are getting you, invested. You got to take in, them seriously as mm-hmm. people. You know, mm-hmm. there was a, a guy who wrote Transformers. Uh, it was a bit of a uh, he came out. I, I can't remember the writer. Um, he was talking about how you can't really create characters out of the Transformers because their cars are. And, and I'm I'm not sure if he was saying something really on the on the you know kind of on point but not communicating it well or if he just didn't know what the hell he was talking about because my thing is well if you approach them as oh they're just giant robots who turn into cars of course you're not going to be able right. to write them you got to view them as as people as personalities right as you know how does their their vehicle mode reflect their personality and and honestly it's like these guys have been defined for 30 years mm-hmm, mm-hmm. there's no excuse for not being able to write a but the, the anthropomorphic you know. experience is easier with things, some things than others, I think. Yeah. You know, like, I, I didn't make, I'm not somebody who doesn't like Transformers. I just never made yeah. that leap. I mean, I initially related to Spider-Man, you know. I related yeah. to the nerd, the geek kid that was misunderstood and yet was doing all of these nice things for other people and yet still catching shit, yep. you know. Yep. And like he if he told the truth he could you know he was the baddest motherfucker in high school but he had yeah. to keep his cover to protect other people love that noble idea you know that was a way that i justified my not fitting in as um a kid in elementary school or whatever i you know i have some there's something about me that people don't know yet. You well, know? yeah, and, and that's, that's the beauty and the genius behind Clark Kent, mm-hmm. Superman. You know, I, I mean, how is he different from Don Diego Zorro? You know, Don Diego, which is basically what Bruce Wayne is or was originally intended. You know, Don Diego was a secret identity of Zorro, and he would mm-hmm. pretend to be foppish and right. You know, real panty waist and a a sissy mm-hmm. and all that stuff. But Zorro was swashbuckling. Mm-hmm. Now with Superman, the fact that he was a demigod mm-hmm. was what made it work because there was a greater contrast between Clark Kent, the milk sop, right? You know, and Superman, the the manly man. You know, um, I mean, well, that, well, I think it was, was really great, interesting you know. about that character now, uh, as opposed, and I don't even know if this, you know, the guys who originally created him, I forget, their, Siegel and Schuster, Siegel and Schuster, that only thing holding him back. And and really making him who he is is that he was raised in the breadbasket of America by yeah. a couple of you know really standard issue um, archetypical American farm people who yeah. uh, who taught him these values and he believes in those things he was conditioned so much to believe in these things that he will never misuse his power he cannot bring himself to do that like I mean it's the whole nurture nature kind of a thing but yeah. like he could do anything he wants. And he really wants to be Clark Kent, you know, like on a lot of levels. Like, that's really who he is, yeah. you know. I mean, it depends on, on which, which iteration. I mean, you know, if you look at him in the 1960s, which was kind of known as the Superman is a dick period, where he would just screw with people. Like, mm-hmm. oh, he'd get Lois pretending, uh, he would pretend to Lois that he was, was intending to marry her. Ah, it's all a big joke. Sorry, Lois. As Superman or as? As Superman, right, totally. Right. Like, he was mm-hmm. such a dick. But you know his his whole his whole thing was that he was uh, he was a prankster. You know uh-huh. it, it would have been fun to be Superman. It, it's kind of it's fun to have secrets. It's fun to be able to pull pranks on your friends and pull one over on them. But yeah, with that um, kind of power, was, that's like you know it's easy. You know, it's but, crazy but, too but, that yeah. he, he would be a loose. You know, 
have a loose cannon but, element like But it's kind of fun. You know, yeah. it's kind of like that's that's what I would do. If mm-hmm. if I had Superman's powers, I would totally fuck with people. Mm-hmm. Like on a regular <laughs> basis. I I mean, you know, a lot of people are like, "Oh, well, you know, if I had super strength, I would find everyone who pushed me around in high school and I'm like, no, 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 no. I would fuck with them. Right. I would like, you know, fuck with them in secret and let them think they're crazy. But that it, is the initial thing yeah. uh the identification i think most of people who identify with superheroes or any kind of uh being outside of real life it's about feeling impotent or powerless in well, it's real a power life fantasy but, right. but i guess my point with superman is at that point in comics he was superman clark was the mask Right, very much you know, like he had been in the thirties. And that 40s. great speech from Kill Bill Volume Two, which was you know. ripped off of uh, Jules Pfeiffer's The Great Comic Book Heroes. Oh, yeah. So, you know, uh, I don't so agree if, with that, but it's any, an awesome argument. If, if anyone you know? <laughs> deserves the credit, it's Jules Pfeiffer. Okay, but again, you know, you look at Superman in the eighties when John Byrne revamped him and made him Clark Kent first, and you know, he wasn't an alien who was trying to be Clark Kent. You know, um, he was Clark Kent first. Uh, mm-hmm. That's what they did with Smallville. You know, it was the, this is who Clark Kent is. Right. Because um, he doesn't know anything about Krypton or about being an alien or any of that. He kn- and not, up until a certain age when he's told, yeah. Yeah. you know. And it, it differs from You're you know, adopted, story to story. Basically. Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah. well, he always knew he was adopted, but, you know, I mean, it's like. Even more in, than you, right. Yeah, in the comics in the 80s, uh, per John Byrne, he was Superman first and then. He learns he's from. So Krypton. you have a dual role as a, an aficionado of all kinds of fantasy and science fiction, and comic books, and uh, graphic novels. Mostly and, comic books. But okay, yeah. and uh, you have a website um, dedicated, a blog dedicated to your interviews and your explorations of those people. But yeah. you all, and what is that called? It's uh, Graphic NYC, and okay. it's, I haven't done anything on it for. Well, there's a lot of archives. A lot of yeah, yeah. Basically, uh, I mean. The, the URL is nycgraphicnovelists.com, and it's it's a mouthful. I Graphic NYC was taken. Well, I'll put a link think, on that yeah, to this. Yeah, it's, it's so much easier. Um, yeah, basically... Uh, I want to talk about more about that later, so hold course, on a Of course, yeah, yeah. Okay, um, so you, you have that, that aspect as a, mm-hmm. a fan and maybe an archivist and a curator and a, a journalist of sorts. You have that mm-hmm. r- relationship yeah. with it, and you're also a writer of your own kind of stuff, right? So... Yeah. You know, back you know back where we are with GI Joes and Transformers and stuff. When did you develop? I mean, what else were you reading, and what was like starting to bleed into you? Like, um, I'm enjoying these stories. I want to write my own stories. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, really, because I used to, I wanted to be an artist, a comic book artist, mm-hmm. and I, you know, went to college for art education. I eventually learned I really wanted to just tell stories. You know, because um, I'm a better writer than I am a penciler. Sorry, mm-hmm. art teachers. Um, <laughs> Sorry, Dad. Uh, but, but no, I mean, basically, um, I, I think what really... So I was always drawing my own comics, you know, especially Transformers as, as a kid. Um, I, I think it was probably... Um, I picked up Batman when they killed Jason Todd off, mm-hmm. number 428. He's like the second Robin? The second Robin. Mm-hmm. Don't worry, he got better. <laughs> right, right. They brought him back unsurprisingly, like 20 years later or something. Um, you know, I picked that up, and, and Batman was a character I really connected with um, as, you know, a seventh grader. Um, so I was, I was a pretty somber kid, you know. I got pushed around a lot, mm-hmm. and I was, you know, I had a big chip on my shoulder. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I so I really got into that. I started reading Fantastic Four at Marvel. And it just kind of went from there. You know, this was a time when Jim Lee was drawing X-Men and um, Rob Liefeld was on X-Force, uh, Todd McFarlane, Spider-Man, the guys who would mm-hmm. become Image Comics. Uh-huh. And they um, go on to do Spawn. Is yeah, that right? yeah, Todd mm-hmm. did Spawn. Um, and, you know, I, I had a friend, Marshall uh, Womack, um, who I met in town. We were in a play, a community theater play. It was The King and I. We were in that together. And, you know, we became comic book buddies. Um and so, yeah, I mean, you know, you know how it is when, when you, the thing with comic books is for me, it's like the, the greatest bond I can form with someone is, is just a love of comics mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. you can introduce them to, to new books and you can learn things from them and, mm-hmm. and so forth and, and discover new books yourself. Mm-hmm. So I kind of got sucked into the whole, like kind of, you know, uh, by that point, like early nineties, Marvel x-men thing and, and the comics were actually really fun at that point x-men was a good comic a ghost rider was what was really the storyline at that point i because i think I, I left off after the the alien you know the sort of alien brood kind of oh yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. that was claremont era early. wasn't yeah, it or, yeah it was yeah. claremont claremont mm-hmm. up until about 1993 probably like the tail end of claremont's run mm-hmm. um when magneto you know was trying to redeem himself yeah and, and came back as with asteroid m um, they they split the books into the X Men Blue and Gold teams. Mm-hmm. Um, Peter David was doing X Factor, which was way ahead of its time. And I actually think, like Peter David's X Factor, is one of the best X books ever mm-hmm. done. I'm not a huge X Men fan, honestly. Yeah. I mean, I have trouble with them because it's like, all right, well, they run around in masks, blowing shit up, and you know, causing massive destruction mm-hmm. and they wonder why people are scared of that right. it's like dude you know yeah lose, lose the masks and and also they're typically really beautiful people so it's kind of like as a kid i had trouble feeling bad for them because mm-hmm. it's like dude you're a freaking male model you're a mm-hmm. anyways so initially relating thing. to the the characters maybe at adolescence and stuff mm-hmm. like that was like identifying and you identify with batman well yeah. uh-huh because he's a little somber and well, I was a an little... angry young man. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, I was very. Did you ha- very identify with also the cause? Like he had a cause, you know, and that's yeah. more highlighted later on. His principles and values and things that he's really about. Right. Did you identify with that aspect? Well, of it? I mean, you know, I wouldn't say identify, but I think you, you know, aspire to. I mean, mm-hmm. you've, you've got to realize a lot of my role models growing up were, you know, from Star Wars, you know, uh-huh. Luke Skywalker. I mean, I was always a bigger Han Solo fan. Mm-hmm. Um, and yes, he did shoot first. Um, <laughs> we all know yeah, that. And Optimus Prime, you know, is, mm-hmm. I mean, always one of my heroes. You know, he always did the right thing, no right. matter what. Right. Um, Bumblebee was my favorite Transformer because he was the little guy. I was the runt of the litter, mm-hmm. you know, and he was a little smart ass guy. He was like Michael J. Fox if he were a Volkswagen bug robot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I mean, you know, you, you just, you, you kind of identify with these things and that. I mean, and again, I'm just, it's a little guesswork, but to me, like, character identification happens when you have a character who has a similar quirk, or as some people would view it, flaw. Mm-hmm. Or vulnerability, I think, yes. is even a better word. Sure. Like, you know, Prime's vulnerability is that he's compassionate. Mm-hmm. Um, and they always made a point of that on, on, on the file cards and stuff, mm-hmm. is that his, that's technically his weakness but that's also his strength. strength right um you know bumblebees was his vulnerability was his size people mm-hmm. underestimated him 
Um, and as kids, and even as adults, we always like to think people underestimate us and we're going to prove them wrong. Right. Um, for Batman, I mean, it was, you know, his loneliness. Mm-hmm. That's his vulnerability. Even, I mean, it's why Batman needs to have Robin. He mm-hmm. needs to have Alfred. He needs to have um, even Batgirl or, you know, Nightwing. You know, yeah. and, and it's people... And, and he could be so consumed in his darkness of of revenge or you know wanting to right this wrong yeah. that without that those external voices to kind of keep him somewhat well, yeah. out of complete obsession. I mean, he's obsessed, but like, but but you know, this is the thing with Batman that, that people I don't think have ever really tapped into enough. Don't realize is at heart he's a caregiver. Mm-hmm. He needs to be a caregiver. I think there's that little part of uh, maybe who is his father, you know, who's a doctor, mm-hmm. his mother, who is very compassionate and, you know, through different stories did a lot of charity work and, and charity. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, I think there's that little part of Bruce Wayne that needs to redeem himself through taking care of someone else and looking after them. Mm-hmm. And that's the way he takes care of himself. Mm-hmm. Um, that to me is why he must always have a Robin or a Nightwing or again, like I said, an, I mean, he doesn't really take care of Alfred per se. He has before, but, that to me is why he always needs a sidekick, you know, or a partner, really. So what kind of arcs characterized first the stories that you liked and then when you started trying to write your own comics, yeah. what sort of a what were you working out in um like character wise and thematically? Well, I mean, for for me someone I I think Tim Drake Robin is is like the best example for me mm-hmm. uh, as a kid. Mm-hmm. what I was seeing and I'm not going to talk about what I wrote in high school because it was awful <laughs> yeah but I, you don't have to be it specific so but what were you thinking what were well, you okay. wanting well I mean the, th- the thing with Robin okay uh-huh. Tim Drake mm-hmm. uh, Tim was the third Robin uh, the second one Jason Todd got killed off by the Joker and um, Batman was too late and he drove himself to the edge mm-hmm. and Tim Tim figured out that Batman and Bruce Wayne were one and the same mm-hmm. because he saw Robin Dick Grayson had done a similar somersault that Dick Grayson, the aerialist, had done. Mm-hmm. When Tim was there at to witness the murder of, of, of Dick Grayson's parents ah. by Anthony Zuko. Um, so, so basically what happened was you had someone who was resourceful, but a little nerdy because mm-hmm. he was a computer whiz. But he was really, 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 really trying to win Batman's approval. And here was someone who would mess up he would get his ass kicked but he would constantly get back up he would get back up and he'd try and make his his dad in essence his father figure his mentor happy Mm -hmm. that's dude that was me i mean i wanted to make my dad happy Mm -hmm. i wanted to you know um i wanted to i would have to keep getting back up i mean i'd Mm -hmm. get pushed around a lot as a Mm -hmm. kid i never got into any really serious fights but you know i think get called nerd i'd get things thrown in my head i mean it's, you mm-hmm. know as a, a scrawny kid and mm-hmm. you know i mean it was just typical kind of peter parker high school nerd stuff right but incidentally i couldn't relate to peter parker at that time because in the comics peter parker was married to this hot red-headed supermodel at that point when you at were that point, yeah yeah right. and, and, and peter was a good-looking guy right it wasn't until i discovered the 1960s Steve Ditko comics. Right. Those are the were, ones that I came up yeah, with. Yeah. They, they are the best Spider-Man comics yeah. ever because um, that to, to me, P- Spider-Man like kind of died as a character when Steve Ditko left. Mm-hmm. That's not to say they haven't done great comics. Oh my God. I mean, what Dan Slott's doing on Spider-Man right now is like the best, most underrated superhero comic. It's 
phenomenal. What's really interesting with Spider-Man and, you know, with all of us, I mean, you're talking about your initial, you know, what you would call horrible stories, but you were working something out. I mean, Spider-Man was really Spider-Teen, and then he was, you know, Spider, uh, you know, a young adult in the 70s. He's in college and all of that. And I don't know what he's doing now, but he's, oh, you know, he, it's taken not, a long he, time for him to become a... He, he, you know. he is basically... Uh, Dr. Octopus has taken over Peter Parker's body. Doc huh. Ock killed Peter Parker and took over his body and has decided that, and it's, it's still the great power and responsibility theme, has decided he is going to become a better Spider-Man than Peter but he's gone off the deep end. How did he do it's accomplish a long this long story? story. Okay. But it 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 is it is the most incredible run I have. And and listen, and this is a book that Brian Michael Bendis did a great job on with the ultimate line. Mark Wade did some awesome stories. But like Dan Slot Spider-Man, it's a book that I tried to give up a few times cuz it's it's it kind of can add up because I think it's I think it's about four dollars an issue and it comes yeah out, you know it, it's not like a, a regular monthly schedule it's like maybe two to three times oh, a okay. month but it's so or good. every two or three months no no two or three times a month the comic book comes out yeah two yeah, or three yeah. Times amazing Spider Man yeah they, they would do this thing where um, I guess it did used to be on a comic books were on a publishing schedule like they, they used to be quarterly yeah way back but but anyways my point is Dan is one of the most amazing writers in comics and people do not talk about his work enough. Um, and it, it kind of makes me mad in a ways because, uh, it does make me mad. Actually, there's no kind of, or in a ways because Dan is just like every issue is solid. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't feel like I've thrown my few bucks away. I feel yeah. like I have, it's been more than like a five minute read. It's like, it takes me 10 minutes. To get I know that's the books. thing is I burn, you burn up comic books as fast as you you know, drink a cup of coffee and they're mm-hmm. four bucks each. That's I wait for the trades a lot of times with things. Yeah. I mean, and you know, the trade is, it's the way I go for some books, honestly. Mm-hmm. But I mean, like when I buy single issues, I read them and I give them away Yeah, because I don't want to keep up with them. It's to me, it's like paying admission to see a movie yeah, or renting a TV show or something off right. Amazon. That's it. You know, and I'd rather hand it off to someone else who's going to love it. who can then hand it off. But you know, so you in your first stories that you wrote, mm-hmm. and when you were still drawing your own comics, yeah. were you conscious of having something you were trying to get across, or were you just piecing together? Oh man, I was just stories like, and total stupid power fantasy stuff. Mm-hmm. I, I actually my first superhero. <laughs> I'm going to resurrect this. I was prescient. Um, he was a an empathic teenage vampire superhero. Empathic teenage vampire superhero. Yes. Okay. Empathic meaning that mean, mean like he, he was a, like a betazoid, like he could actually well, like he telekinetically. Like a, yeah, he was like a fear vampire. So okay. like the more scared someone got, he'd feed off. Of okay, that. okay. But but he still had oh. a bloodlust. Oh, he also so, drank blood. But he tried not to. He okay. didn't need to. But, but he fed off of the emotion. Okay. Yeah, and and I'm like shit. That was like it was so wonky and and it was awful, awful stuff. But somewhere in there, there's like a wonky kernel to like be salvaged into mm-hmm. something new, which which yeah. Will well, happen, there's but. what's the psycho- psychology around that is interesting. I, the psychology <laughs> is I was just, I, I was not getting laid. <laughs> I was trying it, trying to. I mean, I read comic books in the '90s, man. Mm-hmm. I did not. I did not have the girls lining up to spend time with. Well, me. that's all I mean, changed, you know. hasn't it? Like women like comic books now. We're well, not well, completely you, you, committing you, like uh, yeah. romantic suicide by talking. No, about no. Them, well, you know, know, you know what happened is is that 
you know, um, manga, the Japanese comics, right. became big in the 90s. And they appealed to a female readership. Mm-hmm. They got that demographic reading comics. Um, because let's face it, a lot of the American superhero comics, at least, are misogynistic. They're geared sure. towards men. Um, I, I think part of the reason why X-Men has had such a great fan following of you know, female readers women, is Chris yeah. Claremont created with, with you know his artists these strong female characters. Yeah. Aurora Storm ass. in a rogue. Yeah, yeah they're Jean great Gray, you know. Jean Grey, yeah. Very conf- conflicted. Very, a lot of stuff going on with them. Yeah, yeah, but mm-hmm. still very effeminate. Well very fleshed powerful. Yeah. Uh, amazing characters. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, manga really got, you know, and that, that in turn, you know, uh, these teenage girls in the 90s who were reading this, many of them have become the professionals of today. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. we have... I'm glad that we're getting closer to the point where we do not have to refer to a comics professional who is female as a female professional. They're yeah. just a comics professional. They're sure. not, though I will say there is still, you know, I, I was at a convention recently and a creator I know who, who's female was her, sexually harassed mm-hmm. by a male creator. Mm-hmm. And it disgusts me that, you know, we're in the 21st century and we still have this type of mindset. Sure. Um, you know, I mean, it's like, my God, we, I don't know, I'm, I'm sorry. It's just the, the tunnel oh, vision, the tunnel vision that has been inherent in the comics industry. Um, and it's getting so much better now. Well, look, so we're, we're dealing better, with something but, you know. that is basically, it's mythology. All right. Mm-hmm. Like the heroes of the past, where if we're talking about yeah. the Epic of Gilgamesh, you know, the hero's journey, that kind of thing, yeah. which obviously really influenced, um, George Lucas and his writing of the Star Wars yeah. stories because he was down with Joseph Campbell who mm-hmm. encapsulates all of this and shows that it's an archetypical story arc and it's been a, every culture has it and every human culture has it they elevate they give somebody knowledge of something greater they give them powers they give them some ability to transcend but yet they're always yoked to service to uh, the uh, society that they were they came out of, you know, one way or the other. Yeah. That the real, it's not good enough just to be a hero and transcend. You have to right. come back and be a part of the context from, you know, but what it was you, created. But, so. you know, also you have to realize that at the end of the day, in terms of superheroes at least, I think any superhero story that's over-intellectualized is just, well, you know. Okay, for, well, for let me, me finish crazy, this, this point yeah. or, or open this door for discussion is that on the one hand you have very reptilian cortex kind of ideas of our gender roles and our roles as people that are old 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 school and they're old school and mythology and all this stuff for reason because they are the subconscious of the human animal that when things i mean we have the same brains we had when we were running around on the savannah throwing spears at stuff right yeah so on one level in very simple broad terms you know that's our old selves married to what we would aspire to be, you know, um, intellectually or, you know, whatever. I mean, the great craziness of being a human is that we are so animal, like, and we're driven by these urges, you know, anger and revenge and spite and, and mm-hmm. jealousy and lust and all of these things. And mythology and comic books help us to, like, kind of purpose that um, into something nobler. But at the same time, you could have people interested in comic books that are just stuck there. You yeah. know, and they they're just getting their revenge fantasies, like you right, said right. earlier. Right. They're they're just listen. I mean, it's a place to be hostile without hurting anybody. Well, you know, that's what or, the internet <laughs> supposedly for. I mean, right. God, I mean, it's like the whole Ben Affleck thing. I I don't want to. 
I, I've heard too many. I'm sorry. Well, it's like, like, look, look. I understand what you're saying about yeah. over intellectualizing things, but what I like about comic books is that they can be that. If you want them to be, they don't have yeah. to be that. Like you can, I can sit down and read a comic book and just get a nice little like I'm 10 years old again, laying on the bed at the beach, you know, reading a comic book, and then and just have this flight of fantasy, and then I go back to what I was doing. But if I want to, if I am an intellectual, yeah, there's something there for me. Well, you know? well, I, I think the. The best ones are those that don't try too hard. Is what I'm trying right, to say. Right, right, um, Don't get pretentious. And well, exactly. Yeah. But it's like look at Spider Man. I mean, mm-hmm. Stan Lee did not. I mean, it was just a job. You know, mm-hmm. Spider Man was like a last shot for him. He was mm-hmm. like, well, the book's going to be amazing. Fantasy was going to be canceled anyways. Um, so he tried, decided to start writing comics his way um, with Steve Ditko, of course, who mm-hmm. never gets enough credit. Steve. One of my favorites. Co-created yeah. Spider-Man. He's he's a genius. He's kind of the second to Jack Kirby. Like he's he's sort of the next. I, I think they're they... apples and oranges. Honestly, okay. I, I think he's definitely more intellectual than Kirby was. Um, I think that Ditko Ditko actually is one of the first creators to use superhero comics um, as a. a kind of a soapbox or as a forum for his views. So not only was he drawing them, but he was writing Yeah, he did some okay. at Charlton, like The Question, mm-hmm. um, which was where his, his objectivist Randian views really started to seep out in superheroes. Uh, Blue Beetle was mm-hmm. the same way, the Ted Cord one that he worked on. Um, so Steve Ditko was writing, for, I didn't know that, for Charlton. Yeah. And, okay. Yeah, he used, uh, and sometimes he used uh, pseudonyms. You know? And these are the characters that became the source Watchmen. material for right Alan yeah. Moore's Watchmen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right? basically, then... Question uh, became Rorschach, right? And um, and originally, Watchmen was called Who Killed the Peacemaker, um, mm-hmm. and it was intended to be the Charlton guys. But Dick Giordano, realized, who was then basically editor in chief at DC, he I think he referred the term preferred the term managing editor, mm-hmm. um, asked Alan Moore to and Dave Gibbons to create new versions because he's like, if we tell the story with the Charlton guys, then we can't use them again. Right. They're done. Cause some of many will be dead. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, right. Um, and in a way, Watchmen was kind of the, one of the last nails in the coffin for the Charlton guys, because mm-hmm. the Watchmen versions, you know, uh, became the tale that wagging the dog. Like, I mean, they started question was, became a little bit more like Rorschach. And Alan Moore was know. somebody who was able to, put some heavy intellectual stuff into comic books without being annoying about it. Well, like it's, you so, bought it's, yeah, you it's subtle it. and it's mm-hmm. multi-layered. And I think Dave mm-hmm. Gibbons deserves a lot more credit than he gets too. Right. But yeah, I mean, there are thematically, there's so much stuff going on in Watchmen. Mm-hmm. Did I tell you have to read Watchmen if you ever, you know, consider yourself a student of comics. Yeah. Um, you know, the subtext. Well, it's a good story. The, even if you're not into comics, you, you know, yeah. you read that. I mean, that's what brought me back to reading comics was Watchmen and Dark Knight yeah. and uh, amazing stuff, you know, yeah. V but, for Vendetta. Um, but yeah, I mean, but I think, you know, when you look at your guys like Superman and even Spider-Man, you know, what makes them work as mythological characters or beings is that there's something very, very primal about them. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, look at Batman. He's, He's just kind of a knockoff of the sh- a little bit of the shadow, a lot of Zorro, um, you know, and just just kind of all of these elements. And Dick Tracy, I mean, right. Bob Kane swiped Dick Tracy's, uh, well, Chester Gould style for Dick Tracy, 
it took a guy named Jerry Robinson who came in as Bob's assistant and basically drew Batman mm-hmm. to make Batman really work, I think. Um, well, it's interesting as a template, and I, I kind of – did you have more you wanted to say about Steve Ditko and Spider-Man? Well, I, I could we went for, down that? forever say right. stuff about those guys. but the, These archetypes evolve along with us because we are, we are these simple beings, and we're also these complex beings. And the more that our culture evolves, you know, we are having to – we have a lot of issues going along with the way our culture is evolving, and they're being worked out in these characters because um, – you know, we have more connectivity, and without empathy, the connectivity isn't very useful. It, it, you know, it can yeah. be uh, dehumanizing. Um, and so these things are constantly sort of themes in the comic books. They're themes in science fiction. Um, they're themes in fantasy. I mean, they just tend to be... Well, you know, yeah, and you're talking, I think, social relevance, which... Well, it's socially relevant in that human beings are reading this stuff and somebody's writing it, and it's based on the society that we live in. Well, I mean, Batman and Superman, both great, great, great Depression figures. Right. I mean, Superman was 1938. Batman was 1939. Mm -hmm. Um, And they very much reflect the society they grew up, especially the early Superman stories where he fought for the little man. Yeah. People were really powerless in society then. Um, uh, But I think, like, Green Arrow is an incredible example. You know, here's a guy who was a Batman knockoff, who's Batman with a bow and arrow. Mm-hmm. And um, when Denny O'Neill, the writer, and Neil Adams, the artist, took him over um, for, you know, Green Arrow, uh, Green Lantern, mm-hmm. or it was mm-hmm. Green Lantern and Green Arrow, it, they, made, they made Green Arrow kind of a hippie. Yeah, he became a radical. Yeah, yeah, yeah he yeah, became yeah. a radical. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he was trying to take down the fat cats. Yeah. He was... It, but what I think is interesting it's about... Robin Hood. Yeah, he was. More <laughs> Robin Hood. Is is Green Arrow actually... Is highly relevant today with, mm-hmm. you know, gosh, I mean, Wall Street and the recession. Mm-hmm. All of that stuff. Um, which is why I think Arrow, the TV show, actually really, really works is because... He is a rich kid, right? Yeah, he, yeah he's a rich Oliver kid, but Quinn's he's... Oliver Queen. Queen. But he's, he's basically dressing up in, you know, as this vigilante with a bow and arrow and he's taking down people who have embezzled money from the city. Mm -hmm. You know, that's, that's, that's where he works is that we, my God, I wish we had a a green arrow type in real life. And again, you know, when you start wishing that they were real, that's when I think they become effective. Well, Exactly. Right. Cause then they inspire a certain kind of action. I mean, if you know, when you, when you, I just happen to think of Robin Hood, right? So these ideas are another part of, the ongoing mythology is that one person gets too powerful, they get corrupt, or a group of people get too powerful and get too corrupt, right. and then there is a, a, a mediary between the victims or the exploited who is going to even things out. And sometimes he's a, a, a covert member of this elite, such as Oliver Queen or Batman, who's rich as shit. Yeah. His superpower is his wealth, really, and his intelligence. You know, and this so. I mean, this goes all the way back to Robin Hood and probably earlier that there's some kind of a character that is sort of, you know, he identifies with the peasant, you know, the prole or the, the very lowly. Well, you know, it's, it's either they, they identify on that level like Peter Parker. I, you know, we identify with Spider-Man because I mean, we've all had bad luck with jobs, especially now. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's the whole underdog thing or right. in the case of. 
you know, even Bruce Wayne is someone we aspire to be. And, and Peter Parker's um, problems are not about survival of his body. It's not about eating or shelter or whatever. They're totally ego-based problems. So, I mean, surviving some, in some, society. Sometimes you they know? are. I mean, you know, he'd, he'd have to go back and move. There have been times where he's had to move back in with Aunt May. Right. He's been you broke know? a lot, and he's always like, you yeah. know. But but I think he he works better for me than Daredevil in the sense that for Daredevil, it's always like the world is shitting on him. Like, yeah. you know, oh my God, my girlfriend's, you know, uh, doing adult films and she has a crack habit and yeah. she sold me out to my greatest enemy. Yeah. And my, I made my, my wife crazy or, oh, my girlfriend got killed. Oh, my other girlfriend got killed. Oh, it's very you know, dark. I stuff. mean, it's, yeah. it's like, you know, <laughs> thank God Mark Wade is, uh, the writer is not letting, you know, he's letting daredevil have a little bit of luck in life, but, you know, those are types of things that, that could never happen to me, mm-hmm. hopefully, mm-hmm. you know, but, but with Peter Parker, it's stuff like, yeah, he loses a job. He gets screwed out of money. He, the girl, he doesn't get the girl. He, you know, I mean, these are first world problems as in the yeah, comic yeah. books a lot. Yeah. <laughs> they're very, they're almost like kind of lower middle class, mm-hmm. blue collar, lower, lower middle class problems. You know? And that is the, that's the silver age thing, because this is like when, it's relatively prosperous time well, in America, you know, right? Well, I, I would say, yeah. no, that's a non-Silver Age thing, which is why it worked so well. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, when you look at the... Uh, silver I, Age is 60s? Is that no, right? No, no. I, no. You see, I don't, I don't use the term gold and silver in, in modern age much when okay. I talk about comics because I think they are, they're strictly collector's terms. Okay. Um, like uh, the last book I did, Leaping Tall Buildings, we did not use any of those terms because I'm like, we're, we're you know, I wrote this so that people who don't normally read comics and mm-hmm. follow. But what's known as the Silver Age um, launched with Showcase Number 4, which was the first appearance of The Flash. Mm-hmm. I think it was 1956. Um, and basically, you know, followed up with like Hal Jordan, Green Lantern's debut. Um, you know, but Barry Allen was a police scientist. He had a stable job. He had a right. beautiful girlfriend. He, you know, then you look at Hal Jordan, who had like nice sports cars. He was a test pilot. He was mm-hmm. cool. He was swinging. Um, That's the Green Lantern, right? Yeah, Green yeah. Lantern. Um, but the original Green Lantern wasn't that kind. Alan Scott. Was but he, he was Alan, also a test pilot, right? No, no. Alan oh. Scott was a train engineer at first, and then he owned a uh, radio station. Okay. Alan had money. We can really go down a lot of rabbit holes. With yeah, this. Uh, too many. <laughs> a minefield of rabbit holes. Right. But. Um, but it, the thing with Spider-Man is why I think he, Peter Parker works is he's very anti that. He's always down on his luck. Yeah. Plus he's a Royal fuck up. I mean, he inadvertently caused his uncle's death. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Barry didn't have guilt. Hal did not have guilt. Um, I mean, really the only character in comics who'd had survivor's guilt at that point was, you know, Bruce Wayne. See, maybe, I would characterize it differently well. than Survivor's yeah. Guilt is that this was the ultimate lesson, a very hard lesson, of what his life really should be about. That if he was being selfish, if he was only worried about himself mm-hmm. and making money off of this thing, this is the kind of shit that's going to happen. And if he is at ser- of service to others, yeah. that he is less likely to have that kind of collateral damage based yeah, on but, his but powers. I don't but think, it I don't still think happens it's, it's about that. I think it's ultimately about you know, he's still trying he's to tortured. make up for Uncle Ben's death. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, you know, and, and then on top of it, you have Gwen Stacy right. 
dies. He, he, his girlfriend dies. Her hands neck of the green is goblin. broken. Yeah. Except he didn't throw it off the bridge. A green goblin did. Yeah, but, but you know, he didn't it's plan possible it. Right. That his web line caused uh, a her snap. Ne- her neck to break. Yeah. 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 Which you know. Again, it's the genius of that story is that he doesn't know if he was really responsible or not. Well, but he's not because Green Goblin threw her off the bridge. Again, we can argue <laughs> about this back but then, and forth. Right, but then the Green Goblin wouldn't have been messing with her at all if, if he right. didn't know but, that but she then, mattered you to know, him. Then you, you, look right. at, you look at Bruce Wayne. I mean, is it because he feels guilt that his parents died because they were – and there are different versions of the stories, but they were still at that movie for him. Right. They were still in that alley because of him. Because mm-hmm, he was is scared it, in the movie. Is it guilt because of that? Or is it just that he's so angered and he doesn't want to feel powerless again? Mm-hmm. You know, I, I mean, the the wonderful thing with with these characters is that they're, they're just so basic and primal in their origins mm-hmm. that you can do different interpretations. Sure. You can... You know that that's why I, I love I, that people are doing that with them. Yeah, now. but but it, so it many... also kind of gets me when, you know, someone comes out with a new superhero comic or a new idea and it's so overexplained and it's like yeah. no, you need to keep these things keep it simple, stupid. Right. So that's that's how they become. To me, it's how they become because you archetypal. can be you can put more of your connection to those archetypes yeah. in it, and you can add you fill in the stuff that's missing. You know, this yeah. is meant to be suggestive. You know, those comic, those drawings in those frames and that little bit of dialogue, yep. you're really adding the stuff to it. And if your imagination isn't engaged, it's uh, inferior. Yeah. Kind of. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, but again, I mean, I, I don't think things ever need to be like over intellectualized sure. from the, the standpoint, you know. Um, and, and really, for me, at the end of the day, they're just dudes in tights punching one another out. But you do you care. Know? I mean, you are an intellectual. And so you went from. You were trying to draw your own comics. You went to art yeah. school for that? Well, I, Somewhat? I, yes, long story. Um, in a nutshell, we got time. Reader's Digest. Unless you don't have time. Um, well, I'll, I'll need to take a break pretty soon, actually. You know, so do I. Yeah, let's let's, let's do break. it right now. So, um, no, I went, to, I went to VCU wanting to become a comic book artist. Um, there were not very many options for me in Farmville. Um, I could have gone to Longwood College. Um, which had a decent art program, but I kind of wanted to get out of town. You know, mm-hmm. my brothers went to Hampton Sydney, which is a private school. Yeah, um, which it's a great for private school. But if I were there, I probably would have punched out some kid in a polo shirt and khaki <laughs> pants like the first week. It, it just would not have been a good fit for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it's and again, it's like an excellent school, but it just didn't have an art program, and you know. But VCU, um, one of my favorite artists, a guy named Mike Waringo, who drew The Flash, had gone there. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Ringo did. And Ringo was one of my heroes, you know, growing up. Um, he's an amazing artist. And, yeah, I mean, so, you know, it's just kind of, it was the only option for me. Um, but, no, I, you know, you do, at VCU, Was do, Tom DeHaven teaching his... Yeah, um, I actually met Tom, I'd say it was sophomore year. I took his creative writing class, and um, all right, yeah, I, I took <laughs> Tom's creative writing class, and uh, yeah, I, I've learned a lot from Tom. He's uh, he's you know probably like I have a handful of people who I consider true mentors, mm-hmm. and he's definitely top of, on that list. He's so while you were learning your craft, as far as the drawing, was that? Concurrent. Well, no. You, you see, this is the thing. Is I went. I went for art. Edu- uh, well, originally, I intend on doing communication arts and design. Mm-hmm. 
and halfway through my freshman year when I was doing the um, art foundation, which is like mm-hmm. art boot camp. AFO, yep. Yeah, yep. AFO. Um, my art teacher from elementary school died, actually. Uh, she was at MCV. She was on her deathbed for about a good week or two. Um, and that, that affected me heavily because she was like probably the first adult who ever really, I think, got me. Mm-hmm. Or it felt like she got me. She knew how to support me. Because um, I was a weird kid. Um, then I did a, some. I decided to do painting and printmaking because I didn't have to audition for it, and I didn't. I felt like I just didn't feel like I was a really good enough artist. I think, mm-hmm. um, and I really wasn't, to be honest. I, I think had I stuck with it, I would. When probably, it came to like straight up illustration, like yeah, that kind of thing. I mean, right. and you know, I just I didn't. I just I was okay, mm-hmm. you know. Like at best, I could be okay. I think, um, but I'd have to really work hard at it. Mm-hmm. And I was like, ah, I'll just take painting and printmaking. And I took that for a semester and realized, well, what the hell am I going to do with this degree? So I got an art education degree instead. I started pursuing that um, and used, wound up using that degree for two years <laughs> total. But I was so still, you taught yeah, art? elementary mm-hmm. art uh, mm-hmm. after college for two years. Mm-hmm. But anyways, um, so, you know, <laughs> I went through and I did my thing. I was writing my comics um, and I had been writing uh, reviews for Plan 9, uh, their magazine, nine times I used to do. Yeah. It's like a little digest, you know, mm-hmm. awful reviews. Like, I couldn't write Reviews of, of what? CDs, concerts. A friend of mine introduced me um, to an editor there. And uh, it was cool. You got store credit. You know, you get free CDs. You get into concerts for free because, you know, if you review things, you call the publicity department. And... Um, that led me to doing <laughs> editing the entertainment section of the Commonwealth Times, the VCU paper. Oh, yeah. Which, now we're talking 1997, maybe. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to do comic book reviews. And it was like an uphill battle. And they were like, well, you can do comic book stuff. Eventually, they're like, you have to put it in the comic section. I'm like, what are you talking about? It's, you know, utter, utter malarkey, right? right. Um, but I did a, a review of Kingdom Come, which is a, a comic book about a future, kind of like a potential future for the DC Comics heroes, mm-hmm. painted by Alex Ross, who's, you know, uh, just amazing, and written by Mark Wade. Mark's one of my personal heroes as well. He wrote The Flash, which Mike Waringo drew. And I got an email from uh, someone who worked at VCU who actually was like, well, I know Mark. He went to VCU as well. Just like holy, sh- he went to VCU as well, you know. And so you didn't know that? No, no, no. My that? favorite oh, okay. favorite writer, Mark Wade, went to VCU for a hot minute, and um, she got me in touch with Mark to do an interview. And I, she was like, "Do you want to interview him?" I'm like, "God, yeah." So um, I, Mark was my first interview. It was like November '97, I think. And and again, you have to realize, Miss Stu's one of the greatest writers of comics ever. Mm-hmm. And he's doing, right now he's writing Daredevil, he's doing Hulk, he's doing something called Thrillbent. It's a, a website with digital comics, uh, thrillbent.com. Something called Insufferable is his strip. I mean, Mark's, Mark's amazing. Um, but Mark really kind of, talking to him, encouraged me to make contacts mm-hmm. per Mark's you know, own career mm-hmm. of interviewing more professionals. Um, and, you know, kind of so that way maybe I can get in and write and draw comics. So I'd always been kind of writing my own stories. Um, so, yeah, basically uh, it 
I, I got really good at interviewing people. And it was just Q&As for a while. And then by, I'd say it was 2000, I decided I was going to get in every, no, it was 99. I was going to get in every magazine I could. I'd started doing research on a character called the Blue Beetle. Um, I just wanted to start researching comics history now. And uh, one summer, that summer of 2000, I was in the Jack Kirby Collector, Comic Book Artist Magazine, Alter Ego Magazine. Uh, those were printed by Two Mars Publishing in Raleigh, uh, North Carolina. I was in Comic Book Marketplace. I had a cover spot. And I was on Comics Buyer's Guide, which was like the newspaper yeah. for comics back in the day. I, I cut my teeth there. I you know, read Comics Buyer's Guide as a kid. Um, my first exposure to the industry back when it was a slightly more civil place. Um <laughs> But yeah, you, you know, I'm pre-internet here. I'm dating myself. But anyways, I, I totally forgot your question. But uh, somewhere along the line, I decided I'd, I'd rather, yeah, I'd rather just write. Right. Um, so I'm better at writing than I am drawing. I did some comics back in the early 2000s with, with a partner or two. Um, and, you know, just really tried to, to just get it out there. And So you, you have you written your own comics or have you been mostly written like this Peter Baggy introspective. Peter Bag book. Yeah. Yeah. Is it bag or baggy? Bag. Okay. Like paper bag. Okay. Um, no, I mean, you know what happened was through all of the work I was doing for the magazines, I started doing a lot for comic book artists and I started writing essays, uh, historical essays. And gradually I just realized I was pretty good at writing comics history and I enjoyed writing it. And then it became a matter of how can I write comics history different than what anyone else is doing. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I I have a real love-hate relationship with the internet. Um, I miss the legitimacy of, of uh, the comics press. Mm -hmm. but, okay, back in the day, back in the 1990s, when I started, you did not, you could not write about comics unless you were good. Good enough for an editor to say, hey, you know, you had to know what you were talking about yeah, and be a good Maggie, writer. Maggie Thompson, a comics buyer's guide, who mm -hmm. is, you know, like Tom DeHaven, one of my mentors, John Cook at Comic Book Artist. Um, if you wanted to, to kind of have your own say, you could do what's called a fanzine, which was usually mimeographed. Mm -hmm. um, Google it, all you young oh, kids. Oh, I know. We know what a zine is. Yeah. Yeah. But they were, they were mimeographed. So right. mimeographed, not Xeroxed, but mimeographed. Right. <laughs> um, you know, and so you, you kind of had to work your way through the ranks. You had to earn it. Mm -hmm. Then, you know, you just the thing with it now is, is you can be a so-called authority on comics, and all you have to be is just some jackass with a blogger account, sure. which I became with Graphic NYC. Right. But, um, so no, I, I met Tom kind of along the way, and he was the first person I met who actually could give me advice mm -hmm. and support on interviewing these professionals. No one else could. You know, Tom was the first person who, who could really kind of help me out with that, and, um, and I'm very grateful to him for it, you know. Um, he's been a great teacher. And sort of making that, like, not being just some jackass. Too, you know, <laughs> right. But, yeah. like, treating these people like writers and treating them like serious people and asking them good questions. Well, yeah, yeah, that. yeah. And, and, and the art of the unscripted interview is big. Mm -hmm. And, I, you know, I, I've seen, like, I think Q&As generally are lazy. Yeah. Um, they're good for magazines because you have a deadline. And But I, I can't read Q&As. I 
I'm just, you know, I, I just, I cannot get into them. I feel like they're just too raw. Right. Um, and for me, anytime you do something between two covers, it's strictly one big Q&A. It's not a book. Right. It's just a big freaking Q&A. You know, put, put a little more effort So this is right. This is more like a researched thing where the yeah. sources are oral you well, know, yeah, it's, you know, right? you know, I look at, I look at new journalism. I look at, you know, Studs Terkel. I look at, you know, you take, you, you take the, and I should probably preface it by saying, um, I hooked up with this guy, Seth Kushner in New York. I was living, I was working at Circuit City as a copywriter, um, before they went under mm-hmm. and, uh, I wanted to write essays on cartoonists, but kind of with a new journalism slant mm-hmm. where there's you know, a little bit of like a personal perspective. Well, how are you defining new journalism? I'm just for those of us who are not. Uh, yeah, it's kind of like Gay Talese's Frank Sinatra has a cold, mm-hmm. where you know he doesn't just write. Um, he he really he takes a little degree of creative license in writing about the subject. Mm-hmm. He doesn't make shit up, right? But there's there's like a certain really a focus on writing a good essay. Well, I've um, turned a Q and A interview into a play. Before, yeah, where it's like that's, dialogue. That's pretty awesome. Right. Yeah, and, that sort of thing. Yeah, okay. yeah, and it's or, you know it's just kind of giving it giving it like a good slick magazine treatment. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, Seth is this amazing photographer. He's done, I think he's done covers for Vanity Fair, um, Rolling. He's he's shot everyone from porn stars to rock stars to artists to authors. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's just brilliant, and he wanted to start doing that for cartoonists. I wanted to do a similar thing with words for cartoonists, and I always wanted there to be a nice photography, you know, aspect. So we were literally both thinking kind of the same type of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, our words Dean, and pictures. Yeah, words and pictures. Dean Haspiel, a really great cartoonist in Brooklyn, um, who's been another one of those people who really helped me out a lot over the years. Um, Dean hooked us up. Mm-hmm. And Seth and I said, okay, we're going to do this book. On what New- was that book? Well, Leaping Tall Buildings. Is okay. What, that's- it, it's what... Ha- came out of everything originally That's your first book is leaping tall buildings well with seth okay seth and i did that together um so basically yeah we we're just kind of like you know let's do this book and the best way to to really get to it was to start a website to build you know interest so mm-hmm. we could more easily take it to agents to sell and also we could work on the actual book <laughs> originally hey we're gonna do it for like a year It'll be like an interview a week or an essay, an interview essay a week with a, a portrait. And it just, it, it took us forever. I mean, and I would, I basically, and you know, I moved up to New York in the process. And so I would every week go have coffee with someone and they were in person interviews. Mm-hmm. A, um, a different artist a different or creator. illustrator. Cre- yeah. Okay. A different creator. Did you and, focus on, I mean, you, every element of the, of the uh, creation process, right? Like the editors, the writers, the... Yeah, I mean, we, we focused, you know, we didn't have letterers. We, uh, I kind of, my regret is that we didn't get around to it. There mm-hmm. were people I didn't just didn't, didn't even get to that Seth had photographed, but mm-hmm. by the time we had to have the book itself ready, um, you know, there were more, I, I wish I had more, you know, um, I hate to use the term, but uh, because they're still just creators, but we're creators who are female. Mm-hmm. I wish I had more mm-hmm. um, in the book. Who are some good ones? You know, well, I so think drop one of the greatest creators out there today is Becky, who happens to be female. You know, mm-hmm. Becky Cloonan is amazing. Mm-hmm. What does um, she do? Oh my gosh, she's done Conan, The Fabulous Killjoys. 
uh, I'm getting the title right, um, for Dark Horse Comics currently. Uh, she did demo with Brian Wood. Um, Becky, oh, she did a, 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 an illustrated Dracula edition. She is, uh, she's brilliant. Mm-hmm. Like, she's diverse. She has a wide range. She is just a natural storyteller. She's, I mean, Becky is just unreal at how talented and how modest mm-hmm. she is. In real mm-hmm. life, she's, like, such a modest person. Um, fellow uh, Virginian, uh, Laura Lee Gulledge, mm-hmm. um, is, she's, you know, lived in Charlottesville up until she moved to New York. She was actually a studio mate of mine, and she had her second YA graphic novel, Will and Wit, come out. What's it called? Will and Wit. Will and Wit? The first one okay. was page by page. Mm-hmm. And Laura Lee is... She comes from an arts background, not a mm-hmm. comic book art, but an art. So she makes very interesting choices in her storytelling. She's uh, she's just, God, she's amazing. I mean, her work is just, she, yeah. I mean, you know, so, and that that's just the tip of the iceberg, mm-hmm. of course. Yeah. Um, you know, Raina Telgemeier, uh, she's a YA. She did something called Smile. YA? Well, young adult. Young adult, and okay. Raina's off off the hook christine nori is, mm-hmm. is really good i don't see her doing enough work uh yeah it's just it's 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 but i, I wish i'd gotten people like ramona Freden, who did aquaman and i think plastic well man they'll have the to 60s. be a follow-up then like well you know, i gotta tell you man that's hard when you don't four, live in new york <laughs> four and a half four and a half years of our life lives um about i want to say 70 something profiles and we were just so leaping you know, tall buildings is seventy something profiles put into okay. Well, graphic NYC is the web component, right? Okay, so you can and, see these interviews there, right, right? Right. So what what we did was we took all of those profiles and we had we had to pull people out. We couldn't fit mm-hmm. everyone, right? And we fit as many subjects as we could into the book, which is it's the verbal history of American comics, basically. Mm-hmm. Starting with Siegel and Schuster, who created Superman, who, of course, I just wrote an essay about them because you can't not have them. Mm-hmm. Uh, to Joe Simon, who created Captain America. And I mm-hmm. think Joe was 98 when we talked to him. Oh, wow. Passed away uh, two years ago. But a lovely guy, sharp as attack. Um, you know, we went all the way down to, like, people who were you know, doing their first web comics. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, it, it was, you know, we there were people we just couldn't include or we had to really cut down how much room we could give them in, in, in the book because, again, we were limited. And then we had to focus on who made the biggest contributions. You know, you have to have Frank Miller. You have to have Chris Claremont. Mm-hmm. You Alan have to Moore. Have did you get him? Who? Alan Moore. Alan Moore we did not get, sadly enough, because... Tough guy to get a hold of? Well, yeah, tough guy and also photographing him. And it just... But Alan Moore had a presence through other creators mm-hmm. who would, would discuss mm-hmm. him. Um you know, I mean, really, we Dave Gibbons would love to get him. Um, I mean, we could easily do a follow-up book, but I have to be honest, the time and effort we put into it. Four years, it's a lot. Yeah, and it was it was kind of a weird book in that I don't know if, if the, the typical comics audience knew what to do with it because mm-hmm. we did not gear it specifically towards them. You know, um, I, I wrote it for the person who, you know, went and saw the new Dark Knight movie. Right. I was curious. Mm-hmm. Um, and we got some really good write-ups. Um, Michael Shaben, uh, you send him a copy? You know, no, he doesn't have a copy. <laughs> um, but, you know, we, we got some interesting reviews. And uh, I just, I, I think it was a book that, yeah, I mean, we did it. We're really proud of it. 
Um, but right now I'm still, it came out over a year ago and I'm still catching my breath. He seems it. like somebody, do you have any kind of connection with him? I mean, he seems no. like he's, no, do you not approve or do you like him? I just don't have any connection with him. I think yeah. he's a good Did you writer, read Cavalier and Clay? Which is Yeah, yeah, I, you know, I, I liked it, but I didn't think it was like, I mean, I felt like it was doing the same stuff Tom DeHaven had been doing mm-hmm. in Funny Papers and particularly Derby Dugan's Depression Funnies. Mm-hmm. Uh, for years before, and of course, Dugan Underground, the last one. And I, I felt like it was... My problem with Cavalier and Clay, and again, it's an excellent novel. I mean, it, it deserves all the praise it got. I mean, really, it's he's an amazing writer, to say the least. No one, I don't think anyone could ever argue that. But it's like these two as guys As far as do, his relationship two, to what you Two guys do yeah. everything. Mm-hmm. Cavalier and Clay do everything. And everything's so big and so huge. And, and they're supposed to be Sh- Simon and... They're supposed to be kind of like Siegel and Schuster yeah, by yeah, way of yeah. Simon and Kirby. They're more Simon and Kirby, I think. Uh-huh. But, you know, he, he took a lot of that from actual real comics history, which is great. But... You know, it's just the whole hanging out with Salvador Dali, and it just it got to be for me a little bit too a much. little too Forrest Gump. It, it right. was yes, too Forrest Gump is a good way to right. put it, and it's just and Zelig, kind of like, right? Oh yeah, it, it was. I mean, again, it was a great book, but for me, I'm just reading it, going, oh, geez. I like that. I mean, you know, I'm always. I guess I have that little tiny bit of um, too cool for comic books shame, which is I'm le- losing, but I like that DeHaven and. Um, and Michael Shaban sort of, for lack of a better word, legitimize this to a broader audience by, you know, he being a serious novelist and having written Wonder Boys, which is an awesome book, and, and the Secret Police, what was, no, the Yiddish Policeman's Union, yeah. amazing speculative fiction, really. And, uh, and then to write, be a script writer on Spider-Man 2. And which, I mean, I'll that. say, and, like, Sp- you know. I actually prefer Spider-Man 2 to anything else of his I've done. And I, I think... Spider-Man 2 is one of the best superhero movies ever made. Yeah. Hands very good. down. Mm-hmm. Like, it's... Especially the it's, expanded it's, remix of it with all the extra scenes. Ooh, I haven't seen There's that. There's a 2.0. Yeah, it's got much longer... Because, yeah, I, I think it's practically perfect. Yeah. I mean, it really is, like, a perfect movie as far as I'm concerned. Well, the 2.0 includes a lot more battles. Like, there's a very long battle between him and Dr. Octopus that sort of yeah. uh, really sets the stage for that unmasking at the end where the people sort of save him back. Yeah, yeah. You know? And it's and it's, it's just a great movie. <laughs> but no, but you know what, what Tom DeHaven does though, which, uh, you know, uh, is, is he just, I think he really, have you read his Superman book? I haven't read any of his stuff. I just know that like, oh, man, you're you know, okay. he's teaching Ghost World as a, you know, as yeah. a, and I love that, that Daniel Close stuff is, you know, the, the writing in those stories yeah. and, it's a great example of, of minimalist dialogue, minimalist pictures mm-hmm. that are f- just potent as hell. It's yeah. full of, you know, pathos. Well, and- well, I, I will tell you, uh, one of the best, and again, I'm biased because I know the guy, um, but his book, um, he did two Superman books. One is called It's, uh, it's Superman, which is a novel set mm-hmm. in the Great Depression mm-hmm. uh, leading up to Action Comics number one. Mm-hmm. And Tom's an expert in the Great Depression I'm actually rereading it right now. It's the paperbacks and on my sofa there. Um, but he did one called an essay book called Our Hero, Superman on Earth, which is, I think, one of the best, best uh, critical essays I've ever read on comics, ever. Like, it's, mm-hmm. it's just amazing. It's, it's such a great book. 
Um, but yeah, I mean, he, he does more of, I've seen him do more of that, that stuff, Michael Chabon, you know, um, and also like kind of a problem I run into with a lot of novelists who, you know, go and write comics is they don't necessarily get the language. And mm-hmm. I think Michael Chabon is kind of guilty of that from some of the stuff of his I've read. He might've gotten better. I don't know, but I feel, feel Jonathan less. such a wide wrote, range though. You know, and like how that dialogue comes across. Cause I, I've read a lot of the, um, the Hellblazer um, yeah. comics and w- they italicize words. They attempt to create a flow in the dialogue that I don't, I wouldn't put there as a, a, yeah. in my head and reading it. And there's, there's such a wide range. I mean, I think it's best when it's very minimal and you can add the inflection in your head and you can add the accent and all of that. No, when they try I to mean, suggest that. No, I mean, I, I think, I, I think certain writers really get the cadence of language mm-hmm. and letterers as well, you mm-hmm. know, um, but my thing is, you know, uh, novelists who have like huge word balloons per panel. It's like no, right? You you want a, an economy of words. Less is more. Yeah. Less is more, and you need to let the art breathe. A laconic dialogue. Oh, even, you know? I just yeah, <laughs> I I just you know, man, I I just I I can't stand comics that are too wordy. Hell, I didn't even used to read yeah. the square, the, the captions. Yeah, yeah, the, that stuff. I like half the time I like didn't want to read that i just wanted to look at the action oh a lot you know. of 70s comics marvel especially are so guilty of it because you have these guys writing comics who are trying to legitimize themselves as writers because right. they were like fanboys growing up who can't mm-hmm. draw right. so they become comic book writers and they try and legitimize that by like throwing too many huge captions, captions and in. word balloons <laughs> and it's like look i mean it's you know they, they're not really saying anything right you know i think one of the few few writers who could handle really handle captions that had any punch, mm-hmm. which means there's a reason for them to be there. I think Don McGregor, uh, mm-hmm. who wrote Black Panther in the mm-hmm. 70s, which is groundbreaking. Panther's Rage. I've never read any of those. Ooh, it's I, amazing. I saw that you had some trade back there of Black Panther. Is yeah. that? Yeah, that's Panther's it? Rage. Okay. Um, but Don is, Don is an amazing writer. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I... I I prescribe very much like what Larry Hama does. But the serious but, writers you know, you're saying, they're not as... They don't get the dialogue. I, I don't think so. I mean, the... I don't think so. I, I, th- I think the best comics writers are those who have sat down and tried to draw their own comics at one point mm-hmm. in their lives. I think the reason Larry Hama is such a great, great writer, in my opinion, is because Larry is an artist. I mean, he's mm-hmm. drawn comics, you know, um, and he's really good at it. Mm-hmm. But he understands the the perspective of the guy who's going to sit down and pencil it. And he also understands what that person can convey if they're good, mm-hmm. what they can convey through imagery. Um, I feel like, you know, when you have a novelist, you have someone who typically... They're covering the whole thing. Well, right? if they're writing yeah. it, feeling like, yeah, I have to, I have to convey all of this right. through You've, words. I've got to paint the picture for you through words. And right. That, right. This is what the picture's of, not mm-hmm. this is what the picture's going to convey. Right, right. Um, and again, gotcha. there, there are exceptions, but usually when I see that a novelist is writing you know, a, a brand new comic for Marvel, I'm like... <sighs> have you read the like, Brian Posehn? Uh, I don't know what he's... Somebody just told you know He's a comedian, like a stand-up comedian that was on Just Shoot Me and uh, a bunch of other stuff. He's that really tall guy with the blonde hair and the glasses. Yeah. He's writing some t- uh, title right now. I can't even remember what it is, mm. but you know. I don't know. Yeah, there's or Damon Lindelof um, and those guys. Like, yeah, I read some of D- Damon Lindelof's not much. Um, I haven't really read enough of his stuff to 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 be fair. Did you read the Ultimate Wolverine versus Hulk? 
I flipped through it. Yeah, I usually kind of avoided the ultimate stuff, honestly. Not that it was bad, but it just wasn't my cup of tea. Mm-hmm. Um, right, because this is, again, we, we talked about this off mic. DC or Marvel, you're more of a yeah. DC kind of. Yeah, I mean, I really am. Like, I, I just, I love the iconic characters, you know. Yeah. Um, the simplicity in, in, in a lot of the characters, uh, because many of them were created in the 30s and 40s. Um, but, you know, also, like, right now I feel like DC is doing, because they relaunched everything about two years ago, New 52. Some's bad. Mm-hmm. Some's really bad. Some What's of it's good really stuff? bad. But the good stuff, they're, they're doing a wider, I feel like they're doing a wider range of comics than Marvel is. Um, Wonder Woman by Brian Azzarello and Cliff Chang is one of the best comic books out there right now. Mm. It's a crime book, basically. She's fighting like real Greek gods. Mm-hmm. It's nothing homage. It's like, it's pretty messed up. Mm-hmm. It's a great, great book. Um, the Batman books by Scott Snyder have been incredible. Um, you know, uh, Superman, Batman by Greg Pak and, um, Jay Lee has been, been interesting. I'm, I'm only a few issues into it. Um, Swamp Thing by, um, Charles Soule, who's And that was the thing that Alan writer. Moore brought that back, right? Alan With Moore Neil made it Adams? big in the 80s. Was Neil Adams drawing that or is he? No, no, not Neil. Um, Neil did Dead Man. Um, Bissett, Stephen Bissett, John Toddleben did the art on swamp thing um but scott snyder brought the character back mm-hmm. uh, about a year well with the new relaunch he did and then this guy charles soul who's like my favorite new writer he is uh just incredible he's doing that he's doing red lanterns is a good book um yeah i mean they're they're doing such a crazy range of different titles and again i mean some of them are really bad many of them have you know, well, say you're the uninitiative or, or the person who has been away from comics right. for a while and you went to a comic book store. There's so much to choose from. I, I, I recently yeah. went to one and I had a really hard time. So I just picked a Millar, Miller, yeah. you know, the Mark, that's Mark Miller. Yeah. Wolverine story, I think. Besides that old man, Logan, it was some other. But so like if, if you were me and, and I mean, it's like walking in the video store, right. like go straight for what? Like if you if you like broad- if, you, if you like superheroes, I would say go straight for Scott Snyder's Batman. Okay. Um, if you don't like superheroes, if you don't like superheroes, well, if you like horror, uh, I would go for Swamp Thing. Um, in terms of like current issues that mm-hmm. are being put out right now, um, I would probably go for Swamp Thing. Um, you know, yeah, let's I stick would, to what's coming out now because it's a big yeah, rabbit hole. So, so much stuff. And then what about things that are along the lines of the hates and the eight balls, and the fanographic right. type thing? What's good? Um, I, I would recommend Jeffrey Brown. Mm-hmm. Anything Jeffrey Brown does. He does graphic novels. Um, he, did, he, uh, he did a couple humor books. Um, uh, Vader and Son. Mm-hmm. Invader's Little Princess. In Darth Vader? Darth Vader. Mm-hmm. It's like Darth Vader raising Luke Skywalker Luke were five and <laughs> Vader's little princess. It's him and Leia. And, um, but Jeffrey, Jeffrey does a lot of autobiography and he's a brilliant, brilliant cartoonist. I, I recommend him to anyone. I mean, guys just amazing. So your website, the, the graphics NYC, mm-hmm. and then you've done how many books by yourself besides leaping tall buildings? 
Well, I wrote Leaping Tall Buildings, and right. Seth Kushner did the photography. Um, and our designer, actually, is a guy named Eric Skillman, who does the DVD designs for Criterion, who's wow. a writer as well, but mm-hmm. he's just an amazing, amazing designer. Uh, we owe him a medal. Um, mm-hmm. Seriously, he, he's yeah. great. Um, let's see. I did a book on the history of the Blue Beetle. Um about five years ago, no, probably even more, geez, seven years ago, mm-hmm. uh, which is the history of this character who came out in about And that's the Charlton comics, right? Charlton at one point had him. He was been with five different publishers. Uh, now DC has him, and they, they have a new version who's actually been pretty successful. He was on an episode of Smallville. He was on a Batman cartoon for a while, on and off. He was on Young Justice, another cartoon. A great character. Uh, this new version is. I love him. Um, I did an interview with Charles Vess, the artist, um, who also went to VCU. Uh, I don't consider it a book. It's printed like a book, but it's not a book. It's mm-hmm. a Q&A. Mm-hmm. Um, I did the book on Peter Bagg called Comics Introspective. Mm-hmm. It was going to be a start of a series. Which I'm I, really looking forward to reading. Thank You've you. You've given me a copy of that. Yeah, so. Pete's, Pete's great. I hate uh, comics. Totally love that guy. Ultimate, like, uh, buddy... Bradley, is that his Buddy name? Bradley, yeah, yeah. yeah. And actually, the... Pete's doing a biography of Margaret Sanger. Um, Who's that? She I know started that Birth Control, the founder of you know um, Planned Parenthood. Oh, right, yeah, right. And so he's going to do a comic book biography? I think it's now? out right now, or it's oh, coming wow. out very soon. Um, I did a similar book, uh, Graphic NYZ Presents Dean Haspiel, The Early Years. It's a long title. Uh, with some photography by Seth and um, some by a guy named Ryan Roman where it's a big essay book on Dean uh, accompanied by reprints of his early comics stuff. You know, Dean did work on American Splendor um, with Harvey Picard. He's currently doing um, TripCity.net. He's a real early pioneer in uh, web comics. Mm -hmm. He uh, actually was involved with Bored to Death, the HBO show. Oh, yeah. Zach Galifiancus' character is modeled off of Dean. Oh, yeah. I've watched a bunch of those. Yeah, Dean Dean did the, uh, with a a group of animators, of course, uh, Dean did the opening. The titles. Yeah. Uh It was really cool. um, He's so funny. He invited uh, me and uh, Darlene on set one night, and we got to hang out with Ted Danson, um, which was kind of a cool thing, you know. Super nice guy. That's a really, that shows a really great premise, but it... uh it's it's not as good as the sum of its parts. I've only <laughs> seen the first episode, honestly, because I don't have cable. Yeah. Um, at some point, I will watch it, though. I watch it on HBO Go, because like, I oh, yeah, it yeah. for a while. I, I love Zach Galifiancus and Ted Danson. Um, but anyways, yeah. So, so Ted did, Danson ends up really being the, the linchpin of it. He, on he's a, he's, he's amazing. a genius. Yeah. He's amazing. Um, so I did that. Then we did Leaping Tall Buildings. I wrote a, an entire book on the history of uh, comic books uh, on film in the 1930s and 40s is uh, movie serials or uh-huh. chapter, you know, the chapter. That they would show before week. the features. Yep. And the, uh-huh. yep. On Saturdays for the kiddies. Um, I wrote this book five years ago <laughs> and uh, it never got around to being published. And, and so now I'm, you know, I just moved back to Richmond recently. I'm still getting settled, but very soon I'm going to start um, looking at my options, publishing options for that. So, and are you working on writing something right now? Or, or just uh, well, I'm working on some comic pitches, comic book pitches. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I am going to start this novel, um, a horror novel, which started as a comic book series pitch, but I've decided to um, just 
work it up as an ebook just for the hell of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, I'm, I'm still getting settled. Mm-hmm. So I need to wait till I'm like in a more settled place so I can get a routine so I can sure. know, get back to work. Meanwhile, doing copywriting and things like that. Copywriting, proofreading, whatever comes along. Mm-hmm. Um, it's yeah. I mean, it, it's kind of, uh, you know, just a lot, a lot going on in my life right now. So it's a matter of just trying to kind of, you know, get my feet planted firmly back in Richmond. Um, I will start uh, doing being a visiting lecturer for the VMFA, the Virginia Museum. Oh, sweet! Um, yeah, I just uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm officially on board with them, and you know that that could start soon. Um, I'm hoping You'll have to, to be let doing me know when, when you do that because, yeah, like you said, I mean, you, finding out that somebody else is into comic books I, that has been with people that I was I had a hard time talking to, but I wanted to, and I found out they were in the comics and and i'm not hardcore i've just had a decent level of literacy since i was a kid i bought them up until the 80s and i stopped and you know for most of college and whatever but it's really great to have that in common with somebody and i've really enjoyed meeting you yesterday and starting to talk about that and talking today and i'd love to do a follow-up we'll have to pursue that um idea with trinko and and the rest of those guys so all right thanks man yeah anytime Well, that was Chris Irving. Nerds! That was terrible. I hope that didn't blow your eardrums out. Nerds! Um, I I really could have gone on quite a bit longer with that, and that's an hour and a half, but there's so many little K-holes to go down talking about comic books, and I just love it. Well, I I see that this... uh, the audience seems to be really growing for this thing and I would love to be able to give you guys a better product and one of the things that really helped me do that is to be able to buy better equipment I'm using some pretty crummy mics and some very spotty mixing board and an old computer and uh, plus I would like to just do this full time and collect all kinds of awesome interviews and edit them and spend time on them and make them sound good and give you all this awesome entertainment and i just realized that um you know you get i was talking 20 dollars before but damn you know you go on you get a membership to netflix for eight bucks and you get a lot more entertainment than just this podcast so you know stop by my page go to my page and go to the support or donate i don't know what i'm calling it i've changed the name a couple of times um to make a eight dollar donation just like netflix be really awesome because uh you know i'm really into doing this and bringing you guys this stuff and i would just like to have the resources to do it even better and i want to get out of town and go visit some richmond expats in new york and other places because uh that's a that's a part of the richmond story is leaving richmond and uh gonna include that as well although i uh I will, we will welcome them all back eventually. So it goes. Oh, uh, have a happy Wednesday and any other day that you choose to have. And thanks for listening. Adios.